my note on this song is I think Coldplay could really take this song to the next level. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Boosh. Hello, hello, and welcome to another week of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong friends, musicians, and above all, fans of music take a deep dive into some of the most influential records ever made as written in Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums, You Must Hear Before You Die book. We are going to tell the story of this record, talk about how it got made. We're going to play lots of clips, so don't worry if you're not uber familiar. And we're going to explain from a musician's point of view why certain aspects of it succeeded or failed. And at the end, we are going to vote on whether or not you actually need to have heard this record before you die. A quick warning, we are going to poke some fun at this band. We have the utmost respect for anyone who puts pen to paper or song to tape. We are fans first, but having a little fun, poking a little fun, having some laughs about some of the choices is part of our love affair with this thing called music. So join us in that fun. This week, we are going to be talking about a record that the record label, Capitol Records in the U.S., called Commercial Suicide before it was released. And of course, we know record executives are Damn. always, always know what they're talking about. And of course. Uh, one more quote before we get to the record in the clip. Our old pal Robert Criscow, music critic from The Village Voice, labeled it his dud of the month. What? Which I've never even seen before. So I think I want to read you this review, and then we're going to get into talking about the record. Robert Criscow right. said when this came out, my favorite Floyd album has always been Wish You Were Here. I love that he could just start a review and not have anything to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> My favorite Floyd album has always been Wish You Were Here. And you know why? It has soul. That's why. It's Roger Waters' Lament for Sid. Not my idea of a tragic hero, but as long as he's Rogers, that doesn't matter. Radiohead wouldn't know a tragic hero if they were cramming for their A-levels. And their idea of soul is Bono, who they imitate further at the risk of looking even more ridiculous than they already do. So instead, they pickle Tom York's vocals in enough electronic marginal distinction to feed a coal town for a month. Their art rock has much better sound effects than the Floyd snooze fest dark side of the moon, but it's less sweeping <laughs> and just as boring. B minus. Wow. After all that, he still said B minus. After all that. Wow. Right. Wow. I wanted to read it, too, because he, he did get in a jab against Dark Side of the Moon, the, kind of the undisputed greatest record of all time. But okay, he's talking, of course, about 1997's OK Computer by Radiohead. So just so everyone has a little taste of what we've been listening to this week, let's start by playing a clip from what is likely to be the most recognizable track from the record. This one is called Karma Police. Karma 
Okay, and now I would love to go around the room, get everyone's tweet-length reviews of this record, and allow them to introduce themselves in the process. We're going to send it over first to Adam. Hey, everybody. This is Adam. This is actually Adam, not an imposter. I know my voice sounds a little weird, but but from what we've learned the last couple episodes, Phil is really the only voice that actually sticks out. So I could be robbed today, too. But here's my tweet. You know those moments in life as an adult when you're at a party or a reception or some social event and you stumble into a conversation and there's someone you don't know, but as you're listening to the conversation, this new person says something, maybe a Simpsons quote or a mystery science theater reference, your ears perk up and you immediately think, oh, I'm going to be friends with this guy. In this case, the conversation was this album. The stranger was Radiohead. And the quote was the bass guitar at the 32-second mark on track one. From that moment forward, we're sort of kind of best friends. <laughs> Interesting. I like it. I like it. Let's kick it next over to Marty. Hey, how's it going? Here's my tweet-length review. Your friend in high school smoked weed for the first time and listen to this album and now won't shut up about how epic it is because it has odd time signatures. <laughs> Marty used scare quotes for that odd time signatures part. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, this is going to be an interesting conversation, and we're going to get to your guys' individual backgrounds with the record or lack thereof shortly, but let's throw it to Phil next. Hey, guys. Yeah, uh, my tweet length review is Radiohead goes to Abbey Road and tries to make 2000-era Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, not bad, not bad. Okay, I think mine's slightly more in that vein. I wrote, this is Rob here, and I wrote, spindly British guys wail and thrash their way into rock and roll greatness. Technophobic consumerist cynicism never sounded so good. Nice. Okay, so Radiohead, we are tackling the first of our November listener request months, Radiohead came back loud and clear from you all, the listeners. You wanted us to cover this band. They have five albums on the list. They do have that air of indie pretension to them. I think that Marty might have been alluding to, especially amongst our generation of music lovers. Some people don't understand them. Anyway, we're going to seek to understand them today. But I'm curious, if we could go around the room again, I want to hear general impressions, and especially, dear listeners, considering that I think two of the people in the studio today, did not listen to OK Computer until this week, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. So let's kick it to Adam first. Yeah, that's right. And I think looking back on it, you mentioned kind of the artsy pretentiousness. That may have kept me away from these guys at the time when it was coming out. But talk about regret. You know, as we've gone through all these albums, and there are certain ones that I think, God damn it, I really wish I had gotten into this earlier. This is definitely one of those albums. I was blown away this week. This was a really fun week. Again, never heard an, a full album by these guys. Heard all the radio tracks throughout the years. And as a fan of Muse, I'm wondering if this episode tonight is going to make me hate Muse because I feel like Muse is just an extension of what these guys were doing. There were so many moments on this album where I'm like, yeah, that could be a Muse track. So It is. Yeah. We can't talk about them, I think, without mentioning the many bands they spawned. Muse is on the better side of that equation, I would argue. Adam, and they did come out after this record, and some might say based their entire career on the song Electioneering, which we're not going to talk about. But people also blame Radiohead for Coldplay. Oh. That's Eddie. fair. All Damn right. it, I have I always have something I was going to say about that later, but I, I'll, I'll keep it. I'll keep it for later. Well, Marty, why don't you tell us where you're coming from and what your overall impression of the record is? So, I was kind of not into Radiohead. I remember 
some of my friends, some of you guys talking about this album and looking back, I was like, you know, I was kind of a dick about kind of thinking of myself as kind of too cool to like certain bands and certain albums at the time. And so when this, uh, you know, came up, I was like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to give it a listen and, you know, for the fresh mindset and, and maybe I'll, something will have changed. And honestly, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you have it. All right. Join us next week when we... <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. So let's not forget that this band got famous on MTV for, for what I think is a very cheeseball pop song called Creep. I get what's likable about it, but it's, it's really just kind of like a basic pop song. To me, this album is still that basic pop with a lot more attention to production. And that's where I landed. Wow. Well, now that we've heard a wrong opinion, let's kick it over to Phil. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I, I hear where you're coming from, Marty. Uh, definitely on the attention to production. Yeah, I feel like this was a record that for me, like not quite where you're at on it, Marty. Like I did not, uh, I did not take to this record immediately in 97, but by 2002, 2003, like I, I had been exposed to this enough that I... Like, I felt like it was undeniably good. And yeah, for me, I think the attention to detail on the production is what makes it cool. I like the way sometimes the drums sound real close and sometimes they sound like one microphone from across the room. I really like the Mellotron, which I'm going to make fun of pretty much exclusively from this point out. But I think it's great. <laughs> that was the one nice thing. <laughs> you, you can almost uh, never yeah. go wrong with a Mellotron, honestly. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You want to go halves on a Mellotron? Well, I, I totally disagree with that. I think it would be very easy to overdo it, and you have to be quite careful with it because it's such a intense-sounding instrument. We're, we're, we're going to get to that. I also came to this not right when it came out. I should say we're all, for the listeners, we're all of the age where we were in high school when this came out. So we were sort of the target audience for being quintessential OK Computer fans. It sounds like none of us listened to it right when it came out, or were part of that initial phenomenon. It took me maybe a good five or six years, like Phil mentioned, to take it in and realize that it was good. But upon re-listening, I do think it's an undeniable classic in terms of both songwriting, production, and just what it means to be a band. And I think it sent music in a lot of other directions. And it was represented a pivot for this band, as we're going to describe. But... Listening this week, what I the words that came to mind were a deconstruction of a rock band. A little bit like a Michelin tasting menu serving you an uber modern take on peanut butter and jelly. Yeah. I understand as I say that, that that has a lot of pretentious baggage to it. And I, I intend it in all its meanings. But that doesn't mean it can't be freaking delicious and inspiring and make you want to go home and do something weird and cool yourself. So I just thought the whole thing was is a weird, wild ride, equal parts terrifying and beautiful, and just bravo, guys. I do feel like if I had heard this in 97, I mean, at that time, I was listening to a lot of classic rock, the Beatles and everything, and they were doing stuff like this, breaking new ground, you know, from back in the 60s. But to hear a modern band do this, I feel like in 97, this would have helped me musically kind of expand my horizons a little bit out of that classic rock world that I had been living in for, you know, five years or something like that. It feels modern. It feels modern even to a sense even now. And I think they continued to push into modernity as a band. But we're going to, because Radiohead has so, such a long and storied career and so many albums on the list, I really want to keep the discussion as much as possible on OK Computer. That's most of the story I'm going to tell here today. 
But let's do a little bit of background on the band. They were formed way back in 1985 in Oxford, England. They were high school buddies. And in fact, one of the guys who became one of the most prominent members is the younger brother of one of the high school buddies who was just hanging around band practice, didn't even play an instrument. That's Johnny Greenwood. His older brother plays bass. And now he's become a film composer and things like that. And he's kind of the second most associated creative mind, let's say, behind Radiohead next to Tom York, the singer. Their original name was much worse. It was On a Friday. Much and worse. Much oh, worse. Man, that's, that's, new, that's got New Age written all over it. Oof. Yeah, exactly. And in fact, it was so bad that when seven years after their formation, so they played for seven years and to their by their own admission, mostly just practicing, not really playing to that many gigs, just interested in feeling each other out, getting tight as a band, understanding what they wanted to do. But seven years later in 1992, they signed a record deal with EMI who urged them to change their name. They chose Radiohead from a semi-obscure Talking Heads song kind of interesting because i don't think they bear any real connection to the band talking heads at least not musically is that song called radiohead it is oh okay okay cool. it's on know. the talking heads album true stories and i heard a quote from tom york just saying it's that he meant it to be about the way that you take information in the way you respond to the environment you're put in suffice to say the band radiohead does not sound anything like the talking Heads song radiohead but go go listen to it we'll put it on the playlist that's a very artsy explanation for a cool band name these guys are nothing if not artsy and i get why yeah. that can be a hold up to liking them they are definitely in love with themselves and i think that shows on this recording but again that doesn't mean it's not actually good so i'm gonna sure. i'm gonna try to bring hipster marty along on this conversation <laughs> as well as you some of you skeptical listeners out there i have a very good friend whose musical opinions i otherwise respect he also doesn't care for Radiohead at all, so I'm talking to you right now, buddy. As nice. Marty alluded to, their first record, which was called Pablo Honey, launched a huge hit single. Everyone was surprised. The record company was surprised. The band was surprised. They didn't even want to release that song. It was like a song that Tom York had written when he was in high school. They thought it was a cheesy pop song. The record company kind of forced it on him, and it made... It made a huge hit, and it meant their first tour of the U.S. as a young band was actually completely sold out. Interesting little tidbits. One is, they ended up being the very first musical guest on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, playing Creep. No way! In oh, wow. 1993. Very first night. Oh, that's awesome. I kind of remember that, because I feel like Conan had like a 10-year anniversary or something, and I rewatched, and this is probably 15 years ago, but I rewatched it, and I kind of remember that now. Yeah, what, a, what an odd, uh, conveniently uh, coincidental booking that is. And the yeah. other thing, just because we recently talked about this band, is in reference to the song Creep, which I think a lot of people know, and they were kind of considered a one-hit wonder for a while, is that later, the writers of the song The Air That I Breathe by the Hollies successfully sued for a co-writing credit on Creep. Now, I direct your attention to go listen to those two songs. They'll both be on the playlist, and you can make your own decision. But the judge awarded the Hollies co-writing credit. The Hollies, recall, were Graham Nash's band before he left and joined Crosby, Stills, and Nash. The Air That I Breathe was a Hollies hit after Graham Nash left. However, it was a hit. It does sound a lot like Creep. So, Hmm. All right. Interesting. Im imposters. This is what created the situation that led to Radiohead. And let me just like start out by saying that there are very few bands 
I believe ever, and I think this group will agree, that are able to parlay initial fame with one thing into doing, into continual experimentation in different directions and have the culture and the music listening public kind of go along with them. This is a large part, or at least a significant part, of why the Beatles are so well-regarded. And it's, it's not that easy. And I just think, in case you're wondering why Radiohead is so well-regarded, that's a large part of the reason. This, was, this album was a departure, and they continued taking left turns. And they're British. That helps. And they're, well, Britain has all the best bands. Let's be honest. That's a really good point. I don't know. Canada makes a pretty strong offering. You talking about the tragically hip again, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> it's been 100 episodes. Time for you to bring it up. Okay, so because we're focusing on one single album, it'll be a little hard to get at that. But let's suffice to say this is a left turn. Marty kind of used it as a knock against them, but I think it's a sign of growth that they they changed from more pop-oriented music into weirder stuff. But also, even more importantly, let's talk money. Because of the success of Creep on their first album, they were not in debt to the label. And they had a lot more creative freedom from there. The label was off their backs. It was a surprise hit. This is not a common thing for a, a young band. So let that be a lesson to all young bands out there. Make sure your first album is a <laughs> commercial blowout success. Yeah. In case you didn't know, in case you weren't already striving, just kind of an idea, kind of a free piece of uh, advice there. Yeah, give it a shot. You're going to want to nail it immediately. Yes. Just write a hit. Also invent a time machine to go back 20 years when you could make money with one song. <laughs> and do all the stuff I'm talking about, yes. Or you could just rip off a Flying Burrito Brothers song or whatever they did. <laughs> The Hollies. <laughs> the Hollies. <laughs> okay, so that was their first record. They also understood that, like all British bands, they really want to do is they want to break into America. And they understood that to do that, you had to play every city and then play every city again the next year, incessant touring. And so pretty much from that era, they made their second record. They had a little more creative freedom, but it was still under the umbrella of the studio. It was at a proper recording studio. They more or less made it with breaks from incessant touring. And then after The Benz came out, their second record, which I think does show some nice growth from Pablo Honey, it's also on the list, I should point out, they toured constantly for the next two years. They opened for R.E.M. on the Monster Tour. And R.E.M. was actually a band they really looked up to because Tom York and Michael Stipe, they actually became really close Part of it was they felt like R.E.M. was an example of a band who had made it big without compromising too much. Tom York said it time and time again that Michael Stipe helped him navigate, especially in these times when they were blowing up. So the Benz sold reasonably well. They continued touring, 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 building that fan base. While they were making the Benz, they also met a young engineer named Nigel Godrick, who ends up being the producer on this record. He was the engineer on the previous record. And he helped them with some things, and they started kind of getting some ideas about how they wanted to break away from the studio system. Another interesting thing that happened is that after the R.E.M. tour, Alanis Morissette invited them to come open for her on the Jagged Little Pill tour. Alanis loved the Benz. She loved Radiohead. She chose them, specifically, to tour with her. She said, play whatever you want. I don't care. And they, would, they were in the process of writing OK Computer, Basically, anytime they would open for one of these bigger bands, the audience wouldn't know any of the songs except Creep. Right. Yeah. And they didn't, they didn't care. They kind of got used to it. But then, basically, during the Alanis tour, full of teenage girls waiting for Alanis Morissette to come on, they were playing the songs from OK Computer. <laughs> That's <them>. awesome. <laughs> to rolling eyes. To yeah. rolling eyes. Exactly. Yeah. So, I think let's talk a little bit about where the thematic elements of OK Computer come from. 
it comes from one incessant touring and doing press and kind of doing the same thing again and again and again and again. And I'm just getting really worn out and tired while also dealing, you know, dealing with the rigors of touring while also somewhat dealing with the rigors of being in the public eye. They managed to, on the road for the Benz, get a request from Brian Eno. So he was on, they were on Eno's radar to do a song for a charity album. And they ended up doing one of the songs that ended up on OK Computer called Lucky. So that was the first one. They did it in about five hours. And they did it with Nigel, who just kind of happened to be around. It wasn't in a traditional recording studio. Very little time, nothing to lose. And they felt very inspired by that. And so that kind of got their heads thinking about how they wanted the terms on which they wanted to make the next record, which would be OK Computer. The other thing they talked about was that at some point on this tour, they got, they got shown around the Apple offices in Palo Alto. And the people... Oh, Apple com- Computers, not Apple Studios, like Abbey Road, right. Okay. Apple Computers, Steve Jobs, Apple. But basically, it was supposed to be this big honor to be shown around this cutting-edge tech company. And they, the band members were just bored as shit. And that was what first inspired Tom to go home and write a song called OK Computer, kind of about this a cynical take on technology and the future. And that idea kind of morphed and changed into the songs for this record. Where they use a lot of computers and technology to make it. <laughs> they do, but also a lot of practical effects. Uh, so I think there's, there's a few different things going on here. And I think it's that mixture of live band because a lot, we're going to get into the recording shortly, but I was surprised to learn that a, 80 to 85% of this record is just live band, no overdubs. Wow. A, a, a significant amount of it. Yeah, I learned that too. And I also found that quite surprising. Just sounds... Some of the layers just sound like, you know, DI'd or something, while others sound very like in a band space. There are some notable exceptions, but they were very comfortable playing and making kind of soundscapey weird noise as a band. We're going to get to that uh, momentarily. It's basically at the end of the, the band's tour, they come back to the record company and they say, we want our own gear, we want our own studio, and we're going to work with Nigel. Nigel, this young engineer, hadn't really produced anything at the time. He had kind of started working with them as an as a gear advisor and eventually sort of graduated up the chain. And they said, we'll work with them. It's good to have a, an outside uh, person at the session. Uh, Nigel himself said it was really good. The band needed to have another person, especially when they're all playing together, you know, to tell them the take went well, things like that, to take up the slack. The term producing a record, Nigel Godrick says, means taking responsibility it's my job to ensure they get the ideas across. So that's pretty cool. They're young guys, but they were confident. They had about a hundred thousand pound budget, and they knew they wanted to do it away from the city. They had this suite of songs that they've been working on. They weren't fully arranged yet. They've been playing them live on the Atlantis tour. They just knew they wanted to do it away from society a bit. They wanted to do it themselves, not in a traditional studio, and they absolutely did not want to make the same record part two that they had just made, which was The Benz, which was reasonably successful. It had some MTV hits, High and Dry, Fake Plastic Trees. They were they could have continued riding on that success, and certainly that's what the record label wanted them to do. But th- that's not some unique idea, you know? There are a million bands at this point that, ha- that say the same thing, you know, hey, we're going to rent a house in the woods and and make our own album on our own terms. I mean, is that, are, are you saying that that's like some unique take at the time? Or no, is I'm just trying to tell you how they got to something good. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> a lot, you could do anything you want, but it doesn't have to be good at the end. 
That's true. But I mean, Marty, you're not wrong, right? Like by like Led Zeppelin three or Led Zeppelin four, they're like, oh, let's rent a castle and you know, <laughs> right, do, yeah. do, you know, do spells, you know, dangle the drums out the window of a yeah. I think the mobile recording unit thing was actually pioneered by the Rolling Stones. Somebody could fact check me on this, but I think they were the first one, and I think Zepp even borrowed the Rolling Stones mobile recording unit when they were first setting up in the first of their castles. So you're right. It's been around since the late 60s, the early 70s. But even still, I think there's something to the set and setting that you choose to work within. And I think we've all romanticized that a little bit. It does not guarantee good material will come out by any means. But it is kind of exciting. I thought it was something interesting that Nigel said about. So, okay, so just to catch you up, right? They did a couple songs. They set up first in their practice space, which was a converted barn out in the countryside. And they did a couple songs, Subterranean Homesick Alien. I think No Surprises was recorded there and Electioneering. Let's say the less ambitious of the tunes. But then they realized that that wasn't really what they wanted. So they changed locations and they went to a place called St. Catherine's Court, a 16th century manor house owned by Jane Seymour, a.k.a. Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Wow. All right. And Nigel said something that I I thought was kind of interesting, a quote. He said, yeah, the manor house, talking about the manor house. We just went down there, and it was really cool. I mean, why would you go into a space where people had done the same thing already a thousand times? It's like using a public toilet. Yeah, interesting take. I agree. And I think some of the cool sounds you get are like room noise from these different places. They're recording in stone staircases and getting natural echo. There's like a greenhouse on site where Tom actually does a lot of the the vocals. It's a glass house with a lot of reverberation. There have there's a huge ballroom in there where the band's set up. That's awesome. From what I understand, they didn't start and finish there though. They started at their rehearsal space. They did like three or four tracks. Okay. And then and they then did they moved two there. three week chunks at this manor house. And that's where all the I'm going to call them the most important songs got made. Paranoid Android, Karma Police, Airbag, Exit Music, all got made at the Manor House, this like castle kind of place where they lived, and which they all claimed was haunted. But then I heard someone else say, like, all old houses in England are haunted. I think it's the law. And the MLS listing? Uh, They mixed it elsewhere, I think, throughout London. And I believe some of the string overdubs were done at Abbey Road much later for Paranoid Android. But yeah, it's worth mentioning that they rigged this whole house up and it was mostly done live. There was actually, they liked the idea of not only experimenting with live, but not doing too many takes, especially vocal takes. So I couldn't get 100% corroboration on every detail, but most of Tom's vocal takes, Tom York, that is the lead vocalist, were first takes. He hated the idea of doing too many takes. And they also used the concept of minimal audio separation. And, you know, they were just trying to play around with those things and kind of be the anti the antithesis of a sterile uh recording so by that you mean like they were just letting things bleed across like and give a fuck correct is this like a drum thing or do you have any detail on that i'm curious about that. i think that the whole band which would have been so let's talk about the band we have johnny greenwood on guitar we have colin greenwood on bass we have phil selway on drums tom york is of course the lead vocalist and i think he plays some guitar and some other stuff occasionally and we have ed o'brien playing that rhythm guitar so as i mentioned there's two brothers in the band the greenwood brothers johnny greenwood has become more and more known for being kind of a leader of the band and a leader in the the weirdness stuff but my impression is that 
the four guys minus Tom were set up in like a big ballroom for most of the takes. And then Tom would have the headphones on in a, in, I think a lot of them were done in this greenhouse, which they called an orangery because it's like a greenhouse on old properties that was intended to house fruit trees during the winter or whatever. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Phil, that what you said about the or orange Rob, trees. The, yeah. I'll get you that information after the podcast. The, no problem. The minimal separation. I remember on the Lenny Kravitz episode, they were talking to the, producer or the engineer who had done a lot of work in Motown. And he was saying how difficult miking and recording drums really is, especially if you have a kid. He said he would jokingly label all of the different mics on the drums, snare, comma, mostly hi-hat, snare, mostly kick, snare, mostly tom, snare, mostly yeah, yeah, floor yeah. tom. You know, it's like the snare is bleeding into everything. You're not going to get a clean signal from anything close totally. to a snare. Yeah. So why not just give up? Have some fun, right? There you go, yeah. Okay, so we're going to get to the music shortly, but let's talk about the release. It was released June 16th, 1997. As I said before, the record label was pretty down on it. In fact, Radiohead had recorded a whole bunch more tracks, and they were cannily, I think, sending those tracks over to the record label because they were more like singles and more like the stuff from the Benz, but then ultimately none of those songs got included so the record label deemed it uncommercial. They down-regulated their sales forecast before it even hit the market. But it was a huge success. I guess that leads us to our most favorite segment, by the numbers. Let's talk about how well this did in the numbers. It came right out of the box and debuted at number 21 in the U.S. It has now been clocked at selling 6.9 million copies worldwide. That's not shabby. Certified multi-platinum in UK and US. 42 is a number I want to throw at you. This is where Rolling Stone's latest top 500 albums of all time list puts it. 42. Take that for what you will. But then they heard Chris Gow's review of it and they threw it out. Dud of the week. All right. <laughs> hey, Rob, can you dig up his review of Pinkerton just before we even get there? Can you just dig that up for me? Yeah, I'll send that. I'll send that. Do you your have way. Got like a Chris Cow machine? I gotta say, one thing is convenient is all those Village Voice reviews are nicely archived, so you actually can access them. A lot of these other review sites, it can be hard to even access an archived copy of the original review and then you have it mixed in with more modern reviews obviously hindsight is 2020 but okay i have one more number i want to throw out to you which is 50 50 as in half and half half bohemian rhapsody and half happiness is a warm gun this is how tom york described the first single off this album which is paranoid android no, it's, yeah it's got to be paranoid it's paranoid android that's correct yes <laughs> Okay, we're going to get to talking about these songs momentarily, but speaking of numbers, thank you, thank you, thank you, listeners, for all your listening hours, for your fanship, for your love, for your emails, for your awesome, awesome suggestions for our request month. We got so much, so many requests coming in. We had to hire secretaries to mimeograph all the, <laughs> all the entries. <laughs> mimeograph, well done. Tally the chads. <laughs> but but listen, today is the first of our of our request month. We got more requests coming at you for the rest of November. We got a little ask for you today. We have a special announcement. We have merchandise. We have a little merchandise deal with Amazon. We have our first official 1001 album complaints shirts available. There's t-shirts, tank tops, baseball tees, and hoodies. 
The links are in the show notes. You can get them from US Amazon or UK Amazon. And when you click that link, you're going to see all our various band merch there too and a bunch of cool stuff. I didn't want to blow up your spot, but you're wearing one tonight and it looks friggin' awesome if I do say so. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Adam. I try to only wear shirts that I myself created. You yeah. know, <laughs> um, I, I'm also getting a look at this shirt and I can assure you, it looks better than Adam Sounds. guaranteed i too am looking at the shirt i'm wondering why do you cut the nipples out of all your (laughs) (laughs) t-shirts listen you can get it (laughs) what i do in the comfort of my own studio is none of your business we we appreciate everything you've done but this is a way to support the show we want to keep doing this we love doing this every time you buy one of those shirts we get a little royalty we'll throw it right back into the show to keep giving you great content so we appreciate you we think it's pretty stylish and buy it for a friend buy it for yourself rep 1001 album complaints at the merch store kids get your parents credit cards don't tell them if you're listening to this in the car grab their phone go to amazon buy a lot (laughs) okay you're gonna love the way you look all right let's let's talk about some of this commercial suicide record and see if we can't talk about why it's good we've already puffed up radiohead listeners potential radiohead haters including marty you already i think know how this is going to go but i think it's important that we talk about why we like the things we like and why we don't like the things we don't like so let's come right out of the gate with that opening track it is called airbag Let me start with this one. So here's what I like about this song. I think the guitar tone is great. Reminds me of King Crimson, early 70s, mid-70s Crimson. The drum and bass interplay is cool. There's a lot of cool textures in this song. My other comment goes back to that review that you read in the Village Voice about pickled vocals. I love that. I wrote it down as soon as you said it, pickled vocals, because I was trying to (laughs) find a way to describe it. And kind of the question I have is that if, if you write lyrics to a song that you know are not very interesting, would you purposely try to make them unintelligible when you go to record them? That's a great call out, dude. I did have a note. <laughs> I had a note a on question. a lot of these songs. <laughs> yeah. Fair question. I had no idea what he was what what he was saying until I turned on the lyrics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we could poke some fun at Tom York's lyrics. You make a good point. I think it's worth mentioning though that it was definitely the style at the time, as was wearing an onion around your belt. And you know, Eddie Vedder can't be understood one syllable, just about right. For instance. De- definitely, definitely not at this time for sure. Not yeah. Well, there's a, there's a difference between there's a word for it. I forget what it's called. Where you think you you kind of make up your own lyrics for something, and then there's this, which is just 
can't understand it. It's gibberish. <laughs> I understand as much as I want to understand to get the point across. He says jackknife yeah. train. I thought that this is... I like this track more upon re-listening. I didn't really think of one of this is one of the big songs, but it is a good start to the record because it's aggressive. It starts like knives slashing at you. These dudes are out for blood. It's aggressively weird. It's like a rock band in a plane crash is one of the things I wrote. And it kind of does set a template for, I think, what is good, what is going to be good about the record. Yeah, there's a couple of things that really... St- I mean, Adam, you flagged one of them immediately. Like, the way the bass drops at 32 seconds is really cool, right? Uh, you know, and Marty, you even flagged, like, yeah, the drum bass interplay is awesome. I also think that thing, I mean, it comes, like, kind of, like, halfway through the song, and it, it's just a good use of two guitars. They're basically playing the same thing, but one's all washed out. The other's, like, kind of tight. And I feel like this, and this is maybe where you get into the Coldplay sort of knock, right? It's like, this is a cool sound, but did it give way to a bunch of trash? I think you have a band here, and this track shows it, and the other tracks often show it, where you got five guys, they rarely fall into line of playing the exact same thing. There's a hell of a lot of counter melody mm-hmm. action, and there's a lot of dissonant notes, especially in the guitar. Their, con- their whole concept of what is a guitar solo, I would say this record changed my concept of that a bit. It is a hearkening back, I think, like Marty said, to... 70s prog rock which interestingly they were really vocally against i don't think they really knew it very well but they didn't like their band being called progressive rock at all i think they associated it with pomp and circumstance and arena stuff and yet it is definitely connected to that era of music but but this song has like morris code just being played randomly at the end <laughs> some kind of i don't know what that that wah wah sound is there but like it's it's the proggiest of 90s rock yeah and then yeah follow that up with like a 7 8 middle part in the you know the next song it's like a, <laughs> we're not prog <laughs> <laughs> we hate that shit <laughs> yeah and well, i i wanted to mention too a little bit of what was out at the time because we've been talking about the context it's 1997 grunge has already somewhat sloughed off we're into the late 90s era the number one song on billboard when this came out was i'll be missing you by puff daddy and faith evans with umbop right on its heels both underrated uh, (laughs) damn what a what a time to be alive we can tell our grandchildren's that and then i wanted to tell you that it was nominated for album of the year the grammy for album of the year it lost to bob dylan's time out of mind which is a great record but not really breaking new ground they did manage to win the best alternative album grammy beating out friends of the podcast the prodigy and their 1997 (laughs) release the fat of the land oh my god that was an early one right and that was up for an for a Grammy? Yes. Wow. Again, what a time to be alive. So 
it was, I guess on the one hand, I think it was a time when computers and electronic music was worming its way into the popular consciousness a little more. I think I saw that Aphex Twin was was kind of popular around that time too. I think that Radiohead, what they were part of what they were able to do was, in an early way, was fuse that with the rock band aesthetic. I think in a, in a cool way. I'm not a big noise guy. I do like prog. Like for instance, the riff in Airbag is very very prog, right? Marty called out the tone, but the notes themselves sound like a King Crimson riff, and I'm I'm down for that all day. But I would say that the part of progressive rock or the thing that I don't tend to like is just abject noise. This record puts noise in my ears in a way that I feel like I can I can take in a, in a helpful way, in a way that adds to the ambiance of the record. Yeah. One other detail about how this was made, and this kind of goes a little bit against the live band thing I mentioned, but in this case, they knew they wanted to get a drum loop. So this is a drum loop that they made. And basically Tom and the drummer sat there, Tom and Phil, the drummer and the uh, singer, <laughs> sat there for a few hours trying to make a drum loop. It took them like a day and a half, but then they then they had it. But that what they said was just recording it kind of bored them like they, they worked on it all night or whatever they liked what they had rhythmically but they thought it was boring and then they call in johnny greenwood and his pedal board and they're like just run it through that pedal board and twiddle some knobs for us and after like two times of that they're like oh we got it and that's what we hear wow and that's what we're hearing yeah kind of like overdriven there's definitely a little bit of you know clipping on that drum track yeah that's well, cool there's a thing that comes like it's at like 10 o'clock it's like a microphone that turns on and off. Just weird, blown-up drum sound. It always catches my attention. Hell yeah. Okay, let's shuffle right along to song number two. And as I mentioned before, the first single on this record, it is called Paranoid Android. something on this song that i never noticed before that i really liked and i think set a tone for the song that i never noticed i think most songs like you don't realize it but like very few songs start out of dead space like there's always like you hear somebody breathe or you hear a guitar string rustle there's always something right and this song uses what i've got to imagine is the metronome 
Like it counts in, it's pitched in, it feels yeah. right. And it adds just a bit of like a, it like a, it pre-suggests a creepiness and a sterileness that like will give way later in the song, but it's very much the early vibe of the song, like a certain. Yeah, I, I read it as it was the computer counting you in. Basically, like we're gonna start the track, and here's the here's the computer who owns everything. You can start now, and then it goes right into this like shaker, snare, kick drum, acoustic, layered acoustic guitar. And, and this song begins very nicely. Yeah, this is, in my opinion, a masterpiece of a modern rock song. This is about as good as you're gonna get. I think it's extremely well composed. I think the production choices are tasteful throughout. So much of it is done live. I didn't have all the details of exactly how they recorded it, but I'm pretty sure almost all this is live in the way we described, because watching them on stage, it's still just the five guys and the guitar players picking up the shaker at the appropriate time and Greenwood's getting down and messing with the pedal board at the appropriate time or hitting a keyboard. They played together long enough where they could figure out how to get a lot of different sounds live, I think, pretty easily. That's another thing worth mentioning overall is that hasn't been covered, is that they are all very competent players oh yeah you don't have one guy in the band that's not good they're all they know what they're doing yeah i know i agree i the one subtle kind of arrangement choice that i wanted to call out and i've always really liked it about the song and then i was happy that i saw in an interview it got called out by tom york is like oh yeah i was really glad when i thought about that after the fact and it added like a tasteful thing i don't have a timestamp, but it is when they choose to when you feel like the band's about to just land heavy and it just goes back to the acoustic guitar for a round and it like tricks your ear. I think that is such a great, purposeful, tricky little change that they execute. My main note is that you could spend an entire hour dissecting just this song. I mean, it really is complicated. There's these three movements that are happening in there, and they've all got a distinct feel and a distinct sound, and there's there's a rocking part, and the instrumentation is just fantastic. So yeah, Rob, I'm on board with you. I mean, this is, this is a near masterpiece. I think I read somewhere, too, that they had just started to use like pro tools and like that kind of stuff was just coming becoming popular at the time when they recorded this and so i forget what album we talked about before where they would literally cut tape in of just like different a different recording where here they could probably arrange things on a computer more to make because some of the changes in this song are pretty drastic but they sound kind of super crisp super perfect whereas like some of this older kind of prog weird stuff we've talked about before they have to like splice in tape and it sounds like shit you know well, well, you too, you can think about a scenario where they say, like, it was recorded live, right? So imagine a scenario where, like, you know, the whole band plays live, and then they go back and they do a section, and they're like, oh, we don't, you know, we're going to change this section, so everybody but the drums is going to play again. You know, just like, the drums will just roll. whole thing would sound glued together, but you could do these scene changes. I'm not saying that's what happened, but they do have, like, scene changes, like you're talking about. You make a good point. I think it was an early phase of digital editing as we know it today, and I suspect there were a fair amount of edits. I got the impression that the way they would probably do it is they might do two or three takes of the song to a click, and then they would go, actually, you know, the guitar part in take two was a little better. Let's just put all the music from, from take two in that B section. 
something along those lines. But you're right, that would have been infinitely easier in the digital age. I actually just happened to see a little Instagram clip today of Jean-Michel Jarre talking about tape looping in the tape era and how you had to extrapolate from the BPM how long in tape length a measure would be and then cut it into eighth or quarter notes from there and then like literally measure the piece of tape you would want and you know anyway it got a lot easier but i think this is part of what good forward-thinking bands do is they try to lean into new technology and take risks because we know stories of people leaning into say synth technology in the 80s it doesn't age so well all the time I still think you have to try, though. You have to try to, like, master the newest thing and try to use the newest technology to stay relevant. So I I think that's just what artists have to do. Totally. I'll just say personally that the first time, this is the first time I, Rob, heard Radiohead, was listening to this song on headphones. I remember where I was. It was at the end of college. I was walking to class. And when that last section of Paranoid Android comes in with the Mellotron and the big vocals, I was left like struggling to comprehend what was even going on, but I knew it was a holy shit moment of going like, wow, I need to pay more attention to this album, to this band. That's awesome. Phil, here's a throwback. We played this song in college. Might have been senior year, yeah, super yeah, senior year that, with your singer. Yeah, yeah, Chris. Chris. Yeah, he was singing this. I think I I had drugged the Wurlitzer on stage. You were playing an acoustic. I mean, we did it. Up. Oh, yeah, yeah, we did so, it well. Yeah, yeah, so this, this is a, gr- t- yeah, yeah. Yeah, a great. Uh, this a was great a fun one to play as well. Memory. Yeah, yeah. So you mean Phil wasn't playing that weird dissonant solo? That seems definitely like your part. I so. I, I definitely played that part. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I had that. I had the old Boss Phaser, the old PH3. For anybody who doesn't have a PH3, you might want to check one out. Let's keep this train rolling, y'all, and let's go to exit music for a film. Pack and get dressed before your father hears us. Oh, hell breaks loose. My note that this was a nice break from the insanity where this is placed on the album is a nice spot to come down and to kind of give yourself some breathing room and obviously big Beatles vibes you know I, I was singing in my head I heard the news today oh boy over the chord pattern that's not their fault the Mellotron I thought was badass in this but maybe here's one of my little picky notes is that I thought he was off the whole song pitch wise just a hair and that might go back to that whole, I'm doing it in one take and that's it. 
And as he's emoting, I'm sure he's not necessarily thinking about, you know, being A440 dead on the money, but that was my one. Somebody singing out of tune on the album. So there you go. Check that off in your book. That's interesting because I think I didn't notice that, certainly. I kind of think on balance, this might be my favorite track. It is simple, but I love simple songs that are able to build in intensity like this one does. And I think Tom's vocals carry the song, obviously. And um, he emotes quite a bit, right? This one, the vocals were recorded not in that greenhouse, but instead in like a stone staircase where you can hear a lot of natural reverb. Like, what the hell was Chris Gal talking about that he didn't get emotion or soul from these performances? I mean, I really do feel like you can tell Tom York is pouring his heart out on these tracks, and it really comes through. So I'm very surprised when you were reading that review earlier. Yeah, so this this track is interesting. I had a personal experience with this song where I saw the movie Romeo and Juliet in high school, the like one that came out in like probably like 1996, 1998. DiCaprio and yeah. Yeah, exactly. And as I was leaving, this song rolled. This is like the end credit song. And it would definitely like stopped me. Wait, that's in, in this song is in the that movie at the end. It is literally the exit music for that movie. Exactly. And this song, I don't know the whole story, but like basically the director asked them to do the tune, do a tune for the movie, um, and gave them a scene from the movie. So this is like, you know, Tom York like saw an early cut of like the Juliet death scene or something and then wrote this song about it. And it feels that's heavy, heavy. As when, shit. Right? When that bass, that <laughs> yeah. synth bass comes in, in my head, I'm picturing Dude. like, you know, sadness, sorrow, clutching your chest, then dying when that hits. Yeah, it's, it's, it's heavy. It's a cool It's one. funny you say that because my note is should have found a movie to put this in. <laughs> <laughs> and no, then, yeah, it was prompted. It was prompted by Boz Lerman making that Romeo and Juliet. Okay, so that, that makes sense. My other, my other thing is that Will Oldham has. A song. So this this is called Ex- Exit Music, and then in parentheses for a film. Will Oldham has a song on one of his albums called Exit Music for a Dick, <laughs> which I thought is funny. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. What I like about the song, we haven't talked much about the lyrics. I do like the lyrics of Paranoid Android a lot, but this one lyrically I think is really strong because it does that thing that I love when songs do, where it seemingly picks up on a story in the middle of the story. And then it ends before the end of the story. And it leaves a lot to be imagined on either side. But I'll just say specifically, there's this tone change of the lyrics where it starts as, hey, we're teenagers who have to escape our parents and let's get on the road. Let's get moving. We're in love. And then it kind of shifts to this much more sinister. He says, you can laugh a spineless laugh. We hope your rules and wisdom choke you. It just, it gets dark and... Badlands on us real quick, you know? <laughs> Very quickly, yeah. Uh, but I'm glad you mentioned the bass drop. I did mark that, so we will have already tossed that in. also really like the sound effects over the second chorus we've talked about what how you need something to take the heat over the second or sorry the second verse rather because otherwise nothing's different except what you do in the production right it's just different words so the sound effects that kick in at 218 i think are indicative of how 
they just do a good job with the little details on this record. Sing us a song, a song to keep us I should really say to any listener who maybe has not listened to this record and is just hearing our clips, you must, this is one of those songs where you must listen to the whole song. It is a the complete whole thing. Yeah. Uh, You're not going to get the full. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, you can just give them the mark without ruining it. Like it's three minutes and 15 seconds of suspense. Like he holds his voice back. And after like three minutes of him barely singing, like barely moving any air, you, you, you sense something's coming. The drums come in kind of hard. It's got that overdriven bass. I it, I thought it was actual a, a, a string bass, but I, you know what's really cool, Marty? It's a cool like bass thing. Is like it's probably right around like two thirty. The drums and bass like actually get like a little funky for like one bar. It's it's almost like funny. I never noticed it before. It's like they almost like drop into like a dance beat for like literally like one bar. To like one one go round, it's fun. It's just like a funny little like. It's almost like you can see the guys like making eye contact. Right? Yeah, they they, they wink they wink at each other yeah, when they, they play they it they live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> right. A little interesting note I saw was that this was partially inspired by Johnny Cash's uh, prison albums. Be just the the how hot the vocal is when it comes in. It's like way too hot and in your face. You mean was that the, San Quentin or because he didn't he have two or three prison albums? Yeah, Folsom and San Quentin at least. Folsom and San Quentin, ones, yeah, yeah, right. He, I think he played at a lot of prisons, but it's funny because there's also this like weird like fanfare reversed like fanfare sample thing happening in the background. Mm-hmm. Kind of reminds me of pr- when I was in prison. <laughs> we should say for anyone who doesn't know the the mellotron is also on this song and it's that thing that sounds like a like a creepy choir like a ghost choir but it's actually a keyboard maybe people don't know that yeah in this particular song i think it's cool because like however they've arranged it they've got like the creepy voices on one side and like creepy fake strings or fake horns on the other side but you'd never think of them as horns like they're just you know, they're, yeah, I love I love that instrument. It's the strawberry field sound. Yeah, it's yeah. funny how often we're referencing the Beatles, right? I know, I agree that Radiohead was very influenced by the Beatles, and I heard Tom York's site Day in the Life very specifically, but just all the Beatles catalog, and I think it's this combination of both the songwriting, the production value, but this third dimension that doesn't get mentioned enough with the Beatles, I believe, which is their embrace of new technology. Yeah, that that Let It Be documentary, if there was one thing that showed, is that they were leaning into all of that, you know? Like, they were giving that weird scientician that they were paying to build some super state-of-the-art studio. Turns out he was a grifter, but they were leaning in. Yeah, for sure. Okay, let's go to the middle point of the record with a song called Karma Police. This is what you get. This is what you get. This is what you get when you mess with us. Come up, holy. 
This is the uh, the creep of OK, OK Computer, in my opinion. Listen, it's it's repetitive. I, like, I like the song "Creep." I, you can call it a silly pop song if you want, but it's good. It's well constructed. It has a nice production details, and it has a nice vocal build. And I think this song. I see where you're drawing the similarity, but I like. I also like this song. It's catchy and repetitive. You know, I think it's a little more than that. I think the second half of this song is what makes the song on on re-listen. I do love some of the mixing and little production details. I also like the words. This is what you get. When you combine the this is what you get when you mess with us line with the when I am king, you'll be first against the wall, paranoid android. It all sounds like nerd's revenge, and I'm down for that. Yeah, right, right. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah, it wasn't until I dug into the lyrics, like you said, I I couldn't hear what he was saying. But Rob, you had titled our focus list this week, Dystopian Focus. And until I actually saw that title, I was like, oh, this is just like cool songs. And then I got into the lyrics a bit more. I was like, yeah, some interesting dark spots in here. I think I think they get creepy ethereal just really, really good here. And I should point out the second half of this song, I think the band had done it, the whole song. And then Tom York was dissatisfied. And so I think he stripped away almost the entire band. And that it's all now the second half, that is, the for a minute there I lost myself section, is all cobbled together from loops and samples and kind of other weirdness. Oh, really? Yeah. That's wild. Something I like on this song, I mean, two things I really like on this song. First of all, Marty, I kind of agree with you. I, th- I think that in some ways this is like the low light of the record for me. Um, I mean, there's there's another song I'd flag, maybe we talk about it later. Uh, but I, I like the drum sound on this record a lot. I think it's both like 90s and forever. Like, it's just a cool, like, sort of upfront, like, blown out, but also, like, really just captured fantastically. I also, we were just talking about it. This song captures a fun creepiness for me in that the previous song on our record, is it the previous one on the record, too? No, Letdown's right before it. It doesn't matter. Uh, This doesn't have Mellotron, but it does have a lot of creepy singing that sounds like Mellotron, right? Almost the same idea, like tape loops, audio loops that, that mirror the main melody, but uh, it's, it's, it's not the creepy keyboard. Well, I think they got creepy piano instead with those, the, the lines that are played in the chorus of the song, bang, 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 bang. The sexy Sadie line. Exactly. They are sexy Sadie <laughs> yeah, lines. Right. It's true. But they, they sound, they sound cool. And I'm realizing now that I'm tempted to defend his songwriting even more. Because, yeah, I think the buzz is like a fridge as a way to diss someone. I think it's a really funny diss. This guy buzzes like a fridge. He's not saying anything. I like like the line, he talks in maths, plural. It's kind of a fun, that's kind of a fun, fun line. Well, you know that's that's the Brits for you. They they say maths instead of math. You know, I I, I didn't know that. That's that's wild. Anyway, maybe it's a British thing, but I noticed that this song did something that the Jamiroquai album did, which is what I was calling an anti-chorus. Which was when the chorus came around, there were never any chords that showed any resolution. Is that like all the tension built in the chorus, and then when you went back into the verses, where you landed on a root note and you felt relief. Oh, interesting. So it's very interesting how they're flipping that around. One more thing, yeah, that is an interesting note. One more thing about the songwriting itself that I appreciated when I was young, and I think it it made some connections in my brain and influenced me was the self awareness of the for a minute there I lost myself. Like talking, like breaking the fourth wall in a song was still kind of new to me at 20. And I dig yeah, that. Yeah, I never noticed that. 
That's cool. So he's obviously thinking about what he's writing. This is not just magnetile against the <laughs> against the refrigerator. I think he's a great writer, actually. I didn't. You're right. I don't have all the lyrics at my holster, you know, because he is a little hard to understand. But now that we're kind of thinking about it, yeah, for sure. Okay, let's go over to the second side and now maybe begin some complaints. Phil, you want to say something? Yeah, this is a good spot. So it wasn't on the focus list. And I don't want to particularly say that, you know, fitter, happier is some great masterpiece. But again, I think you just said self-awareness. I think fitter, happier is a necessary intermission on this record. It's where you would turn the vinyl over. And in a, in a very interesting way, I think it is a very successful like recognition of like CDs are the mainstream thing. This is a 54-minute format. The listener needs a break, and I'm going to give it to them in this kind of creepy way. But I, I think it's like, while I don't love the song, I think it's really successful for what it does for the record. It enhances the vibe of the record for sure. Like it's, it's very memorable in its approach and you're almost surprised that more people haven't leaned on that before. And it gives you two minutes off. Like the listener for two minutes, they don't listen to singing. They listen to this monotone robot. They also listen to like out of tune piano, which in this weird way sort of resets your ear. It's like a palate cleanser for what's coming after this. Like things, you know, you're, you're, yeah yeah you don't so you can you, get ready for the first muse song yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah i actually said they should have just ended the album with this one i thought no surprises would have been a fantastic spot to just end the album uh the vibe it sets it would have tri- trimmed eight minutes off of whatever it is a 55 minute album made it a little more consumable but i i dug this tune but yeah totally drew lines back to muse Okay, we're code switching a little bit because I think Phil was talking about fitter, happier, the computer oh, I'm voice that that breaks up the middle. To be clear, I'm not even sh- they they would have printed this on a vinyl later, certainly. But I think when it came out, it would have been CD, maybe tape, maybe that would have been the end of the side for tape. But it does create a clear middle point in the record, certainly. So I agree with a lot of what Phil said. Then I was referencing the song Electioneering, which to me sounds the most like Muse. Sounds like ah, Muse could okay. have based a career on it, but in general, they they sound a bit like Muse. But let's go on to play No Surprises. So this is the one you said that they maybe should have ended the record with. I'll go ahead and agree with that, Adam, because I will say, here's a complaint about OK Computer. It goes on too long. Are you surprised, listeners? This is too <laughs> long. I get fatigued listening to it, even though I get the break. I also feel like the second side, perhaps so much has happened. I think that first side is full of a lot of 
dare I say, revolutionary material. It really sounds different, especially for its time. I think that the back half is much more straight ahead. It's still good. I think it's still well-conceived. It's still well-executed. It's still well-produced. But I get a little tired of Tom York's moan, and I think the songs in general are less differentiated, and they go down easier, which is not necessarily a good thing in this case. Now, No Surprises was, I wanted to put that on because I think No Surprises represents the best of that lot. I don't really think there's a low point on the record other than the fact that I get fatigued, like maybe Adam is saying. I think all the songs have some value to them. I like No Surprises, and I wanted to relate the anecdote that it was recorded before they went to the castle, but they didn't like the tempo of the song, so they slowed down the tape, and that's what Tom York sang over. Oh, that's wild. So the vocals are unaffected by the speed thing, but the rest of the band right. is slowed down like a quarter tone-ish. Oh, that's wa- that's cool. No, that, yeah, that's there's a, it's like rain and... Uh, it's the other one. Tomorrow never knows. It's like similar effects, right? It's like recorded at one tempo, sped up, like a lot of tinkering, right? To get this weird. The drums get cool. To me, this is more of a backward looking song. It sounds more like the songs on the bends, even the ones I like, like That's high a good and dry. Call. Yeah, ba- backwards looking is a good way to put it. But I do think they're good at laid back pop songs. I still think it's good, to be clear. That's kind of what I thought too, Rob, is, is that, you know, my, my note on this song is I think Coldplay could really take this song to the next level. <laughs> yes. Boosh. I wrote Mega that this, this is probably the thing that spawned Coldplay. Listen, the first Coldplay album came out in 2000. I think the first Muse record came out in 1999. Another band that I think was big in the UK after Radiohead was called Travis. They sort of hit right shortly after OK Computer. You know, Radiohead didn't throw any specific shade at any of those bands, but they didn't love all the comparisons or, you know, feeling like they had spawned all these other people's careers necessarily. So I I think there's probably some truth in that. Have you guys seen this video, by the way? I thought it was one of the more interesting videos they did. Nope. It's It's just a still shot of him in like a diving bell where it's just filling up with water as the song's going on. And then there's a long shot of him holding his breath with his whole head submerged in water. I don't know. I thought it was an interesting little trick, but it's just one, it's just a single shot the whole time. That's kind of claustrophobic, you know. Matches the tone. He of looks. The song. I saw because I watched the. They made a tour video during the OK Computer tour. They hired a documentarian. It's called Meeting People Is Easy, and it's doesn't really have a lot of information about the band if i'm being honest but it kind of gets across how challenging it can be to tour and how tiring and how they just have to say the same things and press interviews again and again and again but anyway there was a little clip of them shooting this video and i can tell you tom york looked pretty freaked out when they finally took that thing off his head yeah i can imagine i'd be freaking out well speaking of dystopian lyrics i just wanted to cite some lyrics from no surprises He says, a heart that's full up like a landfill, a job that slowly kills you, bruises that won't heal. You look so tired, unhappy. Bring down the government. They don't speak for us. I'll take a quiet life, a handshake of carbon monoxide. Cheery. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I grew up in the 90s. That feels spot on. (laughs) That is, yeah. That's uh, guys. That's also that's going to be in the merch store if you want to check out the <laughs> with the, sure. with the happiest face exactly. you could imagine with those lyrics underneath. Okay, I think we've talked Radiohead's OK Computer to death. Hopefully, we've all learned something. But now is our 
second favorite part of the podcast where we go around the horn and we vote must you listen to OK Computer before you die? Adam, what say you? Hell yes. It is a 100% yes. No questions. I wish I had listened to this when it came out. And fantastic album. So it's a yes for me. Phil, what about you? Yeah, this is an easy yes for me. It's a great record. Uh, and, a, you know, it's a great measuring stick if you're, your goal is to make art rock. If your goal is to do good things, then I guess you should. <laughs> then this is this will take suffice. A, take a listen, Marty. What do you think? I'm going to be a little bit more long winded on this one. I had read something that that Tom York, you know, after the success of Creep, he didn't want to produce another rock album, so he like moved somewhere and didn't listen to music for a year, didn't play any music for a year, and then found some grand piano on for sale somewhere, and he was inspired by this stuff, and and but didn't want to make a, another rock album. You know, then you hear about him like him like going to Apple and being like turned off by Apple, yet using a lot of technology to make this album. Him saying he doesn't like prog rock or didn't want to be associated with prog rock, but the album borrowing so many elements, both tonally and musically, from prog rock. All this to say is that he kind of comes across to me as a phony. And for whatever reason, I listen to this album and it doesn't do anything for me. It may, I feel indifferent about it. Therefore, I cannot allow it to be on this list. So, sorry, guys. It's a strong opinion. <laughs> you don't have to apologize to me. <laughs> okay, well, this is Rob here, and it's an obvious yes. I think this represents what modern, I understand it's now 25 years old, but what modern rock bands should and can aspire to if they push back against the idea that they just have to churn out hits or just do the thing that they did the last time and do it again and do a sequel to it, you know that that must be extremely alluring and tempting to do from every fiber of your being. To go, to try, to try to do something new even, I think must be respected. And I think in this case, they were extremely successful and influenced a lot of other music and bands. And we should point out that Radiohead continued to change. Their next record is quite a left turn, Barely a rock record, one might say, and was still very popular. We'll get to that, Kid A. That one's called Eventually. Okay, Radiohead, you made it. Accolades galore, you're on the list. You spindly, well done, gents. spindly skinny, pale bastards. You're in. <laughs> They're not the best-looking bunch, I have to be honest. They, you know, One of the guys, it might be Fred Armisen on SNL, does a remarkable, remarkable impression of the lead singer, where he just kind of like does like the shaking and like his face is all scrunched up it's pretty it's pretty damn funny yeah well okay we're going to keep it in my court and read a couple selections from the mailbag you guys ready for that let's go yeah we love hearing it all right so here we have a a little bit of a long one there i think there's a couple interesting points in here scott who by his signature is apparently a history professor in tennessee writes us and says whoa all right he said he wrote he wrote a long email legitimacy I, i trimmed it down and, but I want to point out that the first thing he said is this. The main thing I'd like you to consider is covering J.C. Superstar in November. Preferably the 1970 Broadway version, not the crappy Hollywood remake. It's a sadly neglected piece of rock history. And musically, it's more sophisticated than people realize. Well, hey, guess what, Scott? I agree with you wholeheartedly. And we, I promise, maybe not in November, but we will get to J.C. Superstar at some point. Nice. Th- that's All fun. Right. That's a lot of fun. That is a lot of fun. 
we're all, I think, more or less lapsed Catholics here, or some version of that. So it has really nothing to do with religion, but it is the funky 70s laid bare with a Deep Purple lead singer at the helm. He goes on to say, the other thing that has been bugging the F out of me all summer is please, please look up the pronunciation of the excellent word. <laughs> well, I've been saying it progenitor. It's progenitor. The excellent what? word progenitor. One of you, he goes on to say, Rob, I think, but other than Phil, your voices are I usually would never, I would never say that word. Impossible <laughs> to distinguish. Frequently uses it. However, it does not rhyme with Terminator. It instead rhymes with Senator. Progenitor. Progenitor. All right. Well, I'm just going to avoid using that word now. So Progenitor. Hey, listen, I, I love to be corrected. That's fine. Yeah. I want to sound intelligent, and you don't always get things right, and thank you for that. I'm going to do my best to change that in my speech. Closes it out by saying, anyway, that's it for now. You guys piss me off sometimes, but that said, I'm of a different generation, so the historical difference of how you hear and assess things is fascinating in its own right, but you're mostly great, by far the best music podcast I've found, so I've become a devoted listener. I've turned several friends on to you. Keep up the good work and all the informative research that accompanies it. Thank you, Scott. That is, yeah, that is yeah, quite, Scott, uh, Scott bringing up the uh, mean IQ of the listening uh, audience. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. We live to learn, Scott. We live to learn. We appreciate it. Okay, one more quick one. Kevin writes, I recently found your podcast on my endless quest to learn more about music. I appreciate everyone playing off each other, and there's never anyone dunking on anyone else's opinion except Tom's shameful love of Jefferson Starship, which is appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Regarding the Talking Heads episode, you mentioned their early band, The Artistics, but you didn't mention the most bananas part, where during live shows, David Byrne would shave his face with a straight razor without a mirror on stage. It turned out about as well as you would imagine. He has a couple little corrections, too. He says on the Cosmos Factory CCR episode, you mentioned the Wrecking Crew and Muscle Shoals. That ain't right. Wrecking Crew in L.A. I think we corrected yeah, that on a subsequent yeah. episode. And I screwed that up on Aretha Franklin as well. Yeah, it's okay. You know, we can't get them all right, but we know it now. And editor's note from me: I did look it up. That group in Muscle Shoals was called the Swampers. Different set of studio badasses. It's a good name. Good name. He also goes on to say, "I'm a big Mars Volta fan. Loved how you described the guitar as notes that don't make any sense together. I can't unhear <laughs> that now when I listen to it. Anyway, keep up the great work. Even the episodes about bands I don't much appreciate." like Grateful Dead, I know, I know, or ELP Tarkus, what a garbage fire. They're entertaining and informative. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Appreciate it. If you want to correct our pronunciation on anything under the sun, you want to give us a little extra tidbit, you want to tell us we're right and make us feel good about ourselves and our life choices, email those all over to 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. Okay, there is one more thing to do. Man, I feel like I've really monopolized the mic on this episode. There is just one more thing to do, dear listeners. With Tom gone, Albinator is God knows where on some kind of bender in Carson City. <laughs> we are on to our next listener request of the month of November. Are you ready to hear what the listeners want us to talk about? Very excited, very excited, and a little scared. A little scared, I know. Some weird shit yeah. was flying. Some, okay, yeah, right. drum roll please for next week. We sh This one came in hot and heavy, by the way. A lot of people were talking about this person. I don't even know how many times we've referenced this person, surprisingly, given what classic rock heads we are. I'm speaking, of course, about Jimi Hendrix. 
Wow, all right. Thought you were going to say Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> well, him too. We're going to do a mini Minnesota about him. What's, wait, 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 what's he play again? Hendrix? Exactly. <laughs> He's an accordion. Yeah. Jimmy Hendrix, the oh, accordion that's right. player. That's right. Seattle's own Jimmy Hendrix, the Jimmy Hendrix experience. Yeah. I believe... I'll have to double check the list, but I believe that all three proper Jimi Hendrix records are on the list. We're going to do the very first one, Are You Experienced? Nice. So you can look forward to that. Play that on your player. Put it on your headphones. Listen for that panned mix effect that Phil is almost certainly going to mention next week. 60s, baby. 60s. Hard hard panned guitar. There's some aggressive mixing choices. It's, It's exciting. I'm sure. I'm sure. Definitely. But a lot of personality, no doubt. So it'll be exciting to journey back to Are You Experienced for this week? That'll be our homework. Listen along with us, dear listeners. And we have two more listener requests to go. Okay. It's been a heck of a ride down Radiohead Lane. We appreciate you sticking with us to the bitter end for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I'm Adam. Marty. I'm Phil. Boosh. Keep pushing.